I've ended payments to Guatemala, to Honduras, and to El Salvador. We're not paying them anymore because they haven't done a thing for us. <laughs> you know, that's not really the way it's supposed to work, Mr. President. Just saying. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM people-powered radio in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. Uh, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids' WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. Oh, they got a big election there on Tuesday. And, of course, Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. Hope you're there for them all. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. I don't know if we will have time uh, or not to open the phone lines uh, today. Uh, Desi Doyen, if we do, are you ready to accept calls? Oh, of Should course. they come in? All right. We love that. I'd like to. Uh, jot down the number in case you need it, just in case we can get to them. 818-985-5735 is our phone number. 818 985 KPFK, as we are live in uh, studio in delightfully warm North Northern Hollywood, North Hollywood. North Is Hollywood. that where we are at this yeah. point? I don't even know. Uh, anyway, but we got a lot to get here uh, to today here. Uh, starting with this, which is no April Fool's joke. It was just the same old way. Uh, the same old joke of a so-called news service, which calls itself Fox News, makes fools out of its viewers every single day of the week and the month and the year on Sunday as live screenshots and CNN's media analyst Brian Stelter confirmed a bottom of the screen Chiron graphic, the banner that's on the bottom of the screen just after 6 a.m. on Sunday morning on Fox and Friends weekends. One of Donald Trump's favorite shows. Uh, They included a a curious description on that banner of some actual news that Fox and Friends host Pete Hegseth was describing. 
Uh, Trump announced, uh, this was what Hegseth said, uh, Trump announced yesterday and the State Department confirmed that we will be cutting aid payments to El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. And as Hegseth offered that news, the banner on the bottom of the screen read in all caps, Trump cuts U.S. aid to three Mexican countries. Oh, please. That's what it actually said. I, I believe it. I uh, saw the I yeah. saw the photo. Yes. El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras are now Mexican countries. I suspect that's the way that Fox News and Trump and many of Trump's cultist followers probably regard the three completely separate sovereign Central American nations. Uh, you know, well, they're just bun- they're just filled with a bunch of Mexicans coming up here to jump over our border and steal everybody's job and. Uh, so, you know, oh, and vote in American elections, those damn Mexicans from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. At least that's the uh, false idea that the Fox News would like to present. And, of course, that unpaid intern that probably made that Chiron is probably fired by now. I don't know. Or promoted. Anyway, a few hours later, a Fox host apologized uh, for that banner, describing it as a, quote, inaccurate graphic on screen, which, quote, never should have happened. But he didn't actually mention what the graphic said, as far as I can tell. Just said, oh, we had an inaccurate graphic on the screen about three or four hours ago. Sorry about that. Just another day in the Trump propaganda world that is Fox News. But here in the real world, the real story is, in fact, that Trump is now uh, not only making these threats to cut off this aid, but he is now threatening to close the southern border entirely, whatever that might actually end up meaning. Uh, As Washington Post reports over the weekend, President Trump plans to slash hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to three Central American countries, not Mexican countries, but Central American countries in retaliation for what he called their lack of help in reducing the flow of migrants to the U.S. border. The move was one of Trump's harshest yet as he escalates a confrontation with Mexico and Central America over a surge in migration, largely involving children and families seeking asylum. The State Department said in a statement on Saturday that it would be, quote, ending foreign assistance programs for the Northern Triangle. That's a region encompassing El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. The move would affect nearly $500 million in 2018 funds and millions more that were left over from prior fiscal years uh, that were not spent. The money was destined Uh, for Central America, but it has not yet been spent. Trump's action was the culmination of a months-long battle in the U.S. government over the aid program, which grew substantially under the Obama administration, necessarily, as we'll discuss in a moment with my guest, and was intended to address the root causes of migration from those nations, which is essentially violence, a lack of jobs, and poverty in those countries. Some Trump administration officials thought the program had failed to achieve enough results and in recent months have been looking into alternatives. What those alternatives are remain unclear, but the president's decision to cut off the remaining funds appeared to take many people by surprise over the weekend. Uh, It came just a day after Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen uh, signed what the department called an historic memorandum of cooperation on border security in Central America, 
One former U.S. official said that there was chaos in the State Department and in the U.S. embassies as officials tried to figure out whether they had to cancel existing contracts under this new declaration from the president or simply not renew existing ones. The number of apprehensions along the U.S.-Mexico border has been soaring, in fact, of late with uh, more than 76,000 migrants taking in, taken into U.S. custody in February, most of them from Central America. On Friday night, during a trip to Florida, Trump, uh, Trump faulted governments in the region for the increase. I've ended payments to Guatemala, to Honduras, and to El Salvador. No money goes there anymore. We were giving them $500 million. We are giving them tremendous aid. We stopped payment to Honduras, to Guatemala, and to El Salvador. We were paying them tremendous amounts of money, and we're not paying them anymore because they haven't done a thing for us. Actually, we weren't paying them. We were paying uh, groups, non-governmental organizations in those countries to uh, try to help improve things uh, to make it less likely that uh, people would want to migrate from those countries to our country. None, nonetheless, Democratic officials, uh, aid groups, and former officials said Trump's actions could boomerang by shrinking or eliminating some of the very programs that are keeping would-be migrants in Central America. Ken Baker, the chief executive of Glasswing International, which runs education, health, and entrepreneurship programs in El Salvador and receives funding from the uh, from this uh, U.S. Agency for International Development said, ironically, our goals of having people stay and thrive in El Salvador are very similar to the current administration's. Through our programs, we've been able to provide opportunities and the belief that uh, they would be migrants can thrive back in their own home countries. Uh, the key, he said, is getting to them before they leave for the U.S. When you're talking about the problem at the border in the U.S., at that point, he says it's already too late. Jim Nealon, a former U.S. ambassador to Honduras, said that Trump does not seem to understand the way the Central American aid program works. The U.S. government doesn't give the money to foreign governments, but rather, quote, to programs designed and implemented by the U.S. with the cooperation of governments and civil society, he said. Much of the aid is administered by nonprofit groups. He also said Central American uh, governments are not seeking to send their citizens to the U.S. as Trump continues to claim he says, to the contrary, they already cooperate with us in trying to deter migration, but they can't prevent their citizens from leaving the country. Well, they could prevent that. You know, they could build a wall. I, walls work, Trump has said over and over again. Remember how well that one in East Germany worked to keep their citizens from escaping oppression? That uh, Ronald Reagan called uh, successfully to be torn down. I guess they could build that kind of wall to keep the, their people in. On Saturday, Trump warned in a tweet that he would close the southern border entirely unless Mexico used, quote, its very strong immigration laws to stop many thousands of people trying to get into the U.S., 
Authorities in the region have said they are uh, taking what measures they can under their laws. For example, in Mexico, they have offered thousands of temporary humanitarian visas to migrants, permitting them to stay and work in the country. It was unclear whether Congress would try to block uh, Trump's decision to shift the uh, Central American aid that has already been allocated uh, to shift that elsewhere. A delegation of congressional Democrats visiting El Salvador over the weekend called the administration's move counterproductive, said they would do everything in our power to push back on the president's misguided approach to Central America. But unauthorized crossings of the U.S. border have now hit their highest level in a decade. They are still well below the peak of 1.6 million that we saw back in 2000. But the migrant flow has changed in character. Most migrants used to be Mexican men who could be fairly simply deported. uh, But now they are asylum-seeking families with children that are entitled to certain protections under federal law. But Border Patrol agents have been overwhelmed in recent weeks, reportedly, by the arrival of large numbers of Central American families, many of which are being quickly released into local communities because there's now a lack of detention space. Uh, There's no room at the inn, so to speak. Under a bridge, for example, connecting the U.S. with Mexico, USA Today reported over the weekend that dozens of migrant families cram into a makeshift camp that has been set up under the bridge by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The families are there because permanent processing facilities have now run out of room. 700 miles to the east, busload after busload of weary, bedraggled migrants crowd into the Catholic Charities Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, Texas. USA Today reports organizers there are used to handling 200 to 300 migrants a day. But lately... They've been arriving at a clip of around 800 a day, overflowing the uh, the center and straining the city's resources. Along the Texas border with Mexico, from El Paso to Eagle Pass to the Rio Grande Valley, masses of migrants have been crossing the border in unprecedented numbers, overwhelming federal holding facilities and sending local leaders and volunteers scrambling to deal with the relentless waves of people. U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin uh, McLeanan said Wednesday during a visit to El Paso that the border had hit its, quote, breaking point and urged Congress to come up with legislative solutions for the problem. The vast majority of the uh, of, of the uh, immigrants who cross between ports of entry turn themselves in to border agents seeking asylum. President Donald Trump, however, recently declared a national emergency at the border to secure funding for a proposed wall despite congressional opposition and despite the fact uh, that where there does appear to be a humanitarian crisis, if not a national emergency, uh, it's actually back at the ports of entry with immigrants uh, lawfully seeking asylum with Customs and Border Patrol and, and then trying to figure out where to place all of these folks. Not even Trump's proposed wall, however, could stop the wave of migrants that are overflowing shelters in the Rio Grande Valley, where the vast majority are turning themselves in to apply for asylum. McAllen Mayor Jim Darling uh, said they are at a breaking point. 
There is, as of now, no proposed solution to deal with the flood of asylum seekers, though experts charge that cutting off foreign aid would make the problem worse, not better. I spoke with one of those experts earlier today. Teresa Cardinal-Brown is Director of Immigration and Cross-Border Policy at the Washington-based Bipartisan Policy Center and former policy advisor in the Office of the Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection during both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. Teresa Cardinal-Brown, welcome to the broadcast. Glad to be here. First, uh, how bad is the current situation right now? News reports cite officials saying that we haven't ever seen anything like this. Uh, The Customs and Border Patrol is at a breaking point. But they also note uh, that the influx of immigrants has been, in fact, higher in the past, back in 2000, and uh, and that we saw a similar influx of families and children back in 2014. So how unusual is this? And, in fact, does it amount to either a humanitarian crisis on the border or uh, or, as it sounds, like a, a, a national emergency, as Trump has declared? Well, I would say that I don't think we've seen anything like this. And, and just to, for comparison, so back in the early 2000s when we were apprehending 1.6 million people a year, the vast majority of them were Mexican nationals. They were adult men. They were not claiming asylum. And so they were able to be processed and, frankly, removed from the country within a matter of hours, hmm. 24, 48 hours at most. Most of them were not, uh, uh, were not put into long, uh, drawn-out immigration proceedings. They didn't have long detention periods. So the facilities to process them, you know, occasionally may have been at capacity, but not really. There, there was enough throughput, if you will, that, that they were able to process them fairly quickly. In 2014, we saw the arrival of a lot of unaccompanied children, and that did put a strain on the system. Again, the facilities at the border, both Border Patrol facilities and ports of entry, are meant to deal primarily with adults mm-hmm. um, and are really not meant for kids. Um, the system put in place in 2002 and, and continued after 2008 um, was that kids should be transferred as soon as possible to Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement, where they will take them into shelters that are designed to house kids until they can be placed with sponsors in the United States. That process, although got strained at times, was relatively working, and, and children were 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 put in that system as expeditiously as possible, and the overall numbers were still lower. Now what we have are families. So it's not unaccompanied children have remained about 10 percent even since 2014, but it's the family numbers that have increased substantially. Mm. These are families that are not from Mexico, um, and they are asking for asylum, which means that instead of being removed quickly back to the Central America, um, they have to be allowed to make that claim if they pass an initial threshold before an immigration judge. And that is what's backing up the entire system, because immigration courts can take three or more years to get to those cases. Mm -hmm. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement that would detain families only has a few, you know, a few thousand, if you will, beds, if you will, for family members. Mm -hmm. But courts have said you can't hold children with or without their family for more than 20 days at a time. So the spaces for families are getting filled up. 
that backs it up into the CBP facilities, um, and more are arriving by the hundreds a day. And this is the other thing that's new, is that they're not coming in ones and twos and drips and drabs. They are being dropped off by the busload on the Mexican side to cross over hundreds and hundreds at a time. So we, we hear about caravans coming up from Central America. Mm-hmm. CBP is encountering the equivalent of a caravan about every three days at the border. Mm-hmm even though they're not coming as caravans. They're coming by paid smugglers. So, so they're coming in numbers that are just overflowing their capacity to hold them anywhere. So, so this is not a question, for example, of a, uh, of a process that has been broken under this particular administration, this is the process going the way it's supposed to uh, supposed to work, but uh, but but the conditions have changed uh, uh, concerning what we are seeing now coming up across the border in a way that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I think one way to describe it is that we set up a set of conditions meant to protect asylum seekers and kids mm-hmm. that worked when we were dealing with a small minority of crossers at the border. Mm. Um, what has happened is as that has grown and as the migrants themselves, themselves and the smuggling organizations that sponsor them realize that going through this process is now almost a guarantee that they'll be admitted into the United States, it's encouraging more and more to come in bigger and bigger volumes, and it has just simply outstripped the system as it was designed, the capacity of the system as designed. So I guess the question, um, what question is, why is this now happening? Why are we seeing such big numbers? I thought that uh, Donald Trump's tough immigration policies were supposed to scare folks off from even trying to get here, but they, but it seems to be uh, the, the opposite that is, is occurring, no? So we did see a decline in 2017, the year after he was elected, in migration to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, A lot of that was based on the tough rhetoric that the president had during his campaign, and we think a lot of migrants may have been waiting to see if uh, what would happen if it meant that border security would increase. Mm -hmm. But the reality is not much changed. The process remained the same. And even though he tried several things to try to toughen up things at the border, a lot of that was blocked in the courts. Congress didn't pass other changes to legislation. So the process really didn't change. And as more and more arrived and were seen to succeed in getting allowed into the United States, it, 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 it was a feedback loop. And more and more decided to come. And then you have the smugglers that are criminal money-making enterprises mm-hmm. who see profit, who charge six to $8,000 per migrant to get them here uh, for what's relatively easy for them because they don't even have to get them across the border. They just get them to the border and then say, here, go, go there and walk up to the, next, the closest available immigration agent. So it's low risk for them, high profit. They have an incentive to keep people coming. So, you know, we can talk about the conditions in those countries, and mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a driving factor. But we also have to recognize that the inability of the system to quickly respond to the volume um, has also created a, a, an issue of, of people succeeding coming to the United States. And and that's what I'm wondering. What is needed here? What should uh, the administration and Congress be doing at this point to uh, to deal with what's going on? Obviously, Trump seems to have uh, one solution that he repeats over and over again: build more wall. But what would you like to see, uh, and and what would the uh, bipartisan policy center like to see the administration and Congress doing at this point to deal with this uh, humanitarian crisis or national emergency, whatever you want to call it? 
Well, I, I would definitely call it a humanitarian crisis, and I think there are two things we need to do. One is we need to deal with the immediate humanitarian issues of the families and kids at the border. CBP is overstretched. It does not have facilities that are appropriate for anyone, families or kids, for mm-hmm. the length of time they're having to be held there. They don't have appropriate um, ability to look for medical issues that may may have. Unfortunately, we've seen some deaths in their custody um, because they were never designed for any type of long-term custody. So one thing that absolutely needs to be done is look to what are the humanitarian needs of this population. Can we find some way of of putting together uh, rapidly some sort of temporary expanded facilities that are more appropriate for families and kids to do this kind of processing that's needed? This is just the humanitarian response that has to happen. How do we help NGOs uh, like the respite center you mentioned in McCown? Where can we find more capacity for them once they're released from the custody? I mean, this is a humanitarian piece. But the only way we're really going to address the flows um, is if we address our asylum system, and that means back to front, starting with the immigration courts. Uh, that three-year backlog is untenable. Uh, the majority of the cases aren't even asylum cases. Those are cases that are generated in the United States from people arrested here and have been in the system for a very long time. What can we do to expedite those cases, expedite the decisions? If the majority of these migrants are not eligible for asylum, which is the, the rates show about 20 or 30 percent of them would get asylum, then that should be quickly determined and people should be returned humanely to their countries. Um, We should help work with Mexico. What can we do with Mexico to help them extend asylum protections in Mexico to those as an alternative to those who want it? And ultimately, we need to deal with what's going on in the sending countries. Um, What are the push factors that are driving migration? Uh, You you have instability of government. You have uh, people who don't feel like they have personal safety because there's impunity and corruption in the governments. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are threatened with gangs and violence and extreme poverty. What can we do to help that situation? That's the longer-term solution, but it needs to be also worked at the source. So we've got to look at this from multiple multiple places. Um, debating, frankly, over a wall or whether or not this is a really a crisis is not helping us deal with what's happening on the ground, and we kind of need to get beyond the rhetoric and push forward on solutions that can really make a difference. We do, and we need to get beyond the rhetoric, but you raised two points there as far as sort of two pots of money um, that sound like are needed here to help solve this problem. One, uh, Donald Trump obviously has been uh, calling for all of that money for the wall, and he's going to take some from the military in order to try to build that uh, to, to build that wall. That is one pot of money. Then there's the pot of money that is given to uh, to help the problem on the front end in the actual nations. Let me ask you about that first pot of money uh, that is currently going for a wall. Is that something that, in some fashion? helps this problem or should that money be put towards as you describe more courts more judges uh, more facilities shelters and so forth to deal with the immediate problem of uh, both accepting uh, folks as they come across the border and then processing them quickly uh, once they're here so here's what i would say about the wall the wall will do absolutely nothing to address this current flow of people um primarily because the wall has to be built on the U.S. side, and we've already seen in places where there is wall or fence, mm-hmm. they literally walk up to the wall and wait there until Border Patrol comes by and says, we're on U.S. soil, you need to let us in, mm. and Border Patrol has to. So it's not preventing entry. Mm. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and, and, and so uh, the wall itself is not a solution to this particular problem. The walls do help um, deter and, and help uh, Border Patrol secure the border from other issues, like 
drugs that are trying to be smuggled between the ports, those who are trying to escape uh, detection by the Border Patrol and get into the country, yes, walls can help in certain places on that. But it's not a solution to this particular problem. And so if we're talking about an emergency or a crisis humanitarian nature and there's to deal with this problem, I would say the wall is not where we should primarily be putting our money right now. It should be putting it toward these other parts of the system that are more directly impacted by this particular current flow. And we can look at what wall is needed mm -hmm. once we kind of get back to a more normal situation at the border. Um, in terms of the money that's going to the Central American countries, I know the administration has recently announced it's going to cut off all mm -hmm. aid. I think that is, that's, that's, that is um, a long-term problem. Um, you're not going to reduce the push factors at all unless we can help those countries. The majority of aid that we give to those countries, as I understand it, actually doesn't go to the governments themselves. Mm -hmm. It goes to nonprofit organizations or right. non-governmental organizations that are working in those countries. A lot of it is used at the, the local level with local programs aimed at, for example, keeping uh, kids out of the gangs and trying to provide them additional education and job opportunities and development, um, cooperating on restoring integrity of the law enforcement and judicial systems in those countries. That's all important work. It has takes longer to see than to pay off, um, but it can work if we give it enough time. Cutting it off to try to coerce the governments into acting against their own citizens, I, I think that's, that's a counterproductive um, way of operating. And, and to, um, be, to be clear, when you say counterproductive, just to be specific, uh, it could end up increasing the number of uh, immigrants leaving those countries and, and coming up towards ours, correct? In the short run, it might, yes. So uh, and, then, and then there's a, a number of uh, there's sort of another pot of money or maybe it's uh, still the same pot. I'm not sure here that uh, go to groups, uh, charities that are here in the U.S. I mentioned the Catholic Charities Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, the city of McAllen itself. Uh, folks who are trying to offer shelter and other aid to immigrants on this side of the border as they're processed uh, for their asylum claims and so forth. They say that they are not receiving the federal funding that they need or that they might expect. Uh, why is that happening? Is that just a lack of appropriations or is money actually being held up by this administration somewhere? So, first of all, when it comes to nonprofit organizations, all of that money for the most part mm -hmm. is private sector donations. It's, it's people like you and I donating to their organizations to help support the work that they're doing. Um, so that money is almost not at all uh, related to government funding. Mm -hmm. As far as for the cities and localities that are expending their own resources, for example, the city of McAllen has started uh, uh, contracting with buses to take migrants to the respite shelter. That's at the city's tax dollars. They're using money that they would usually set aside for emergencies. Um, Unfortunately, this isn't like a hurricane or a natural disaster where there is a, you know, a national disaster declaration can be given at the federal level, and mm -hmm. that loses a lot of federal money to go help states and localities deal with it. This doesn't qualify for that kind of a money grant, right? Um, so there's not an obvious sort of mechanism for the federal government to reimburse states and localities mm -hmm. for anything they're trying to do on this particular issue. Um, and that's something that maybe Congress could look at. But right now, there's not really a, 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 a pot of money or a process 
that would that would help with that. Wow, making it even uh, harder for those uh, for those organizations and for those cities to expand uh, shelters and so forth uh, at this moment of crisis. Uh, yeah. Teresa Cardinal Brown, director of immigration and cross border policy for the Bipartisan Policy Center. I got another uh, a couple of uh, two quick questions I want to try to hit with you here before I let you go. Uh, the other, let's call it, solution that uh, Trump has been threatening is to close off the border with Mexico entirely. Has anything like that ever been done? And what would we expect to be the consequences of something like that if he follows through with that with that threat? Well, I don't I don't think that we've had any time where we've completely shut down all ports of entry to travel and trade. There have been times when we have significantly restricted it. Mm-hmm. Um, in in part, uh, I think Nixon did it at one time. Reagan did it when there was an FBI agent that was killed in Mexico. And certainly after 9-11, uh, you know, the days after 9-11, we were very concerned about what's coming across the border. We slowed things to a trickle. Uh, but every time we do that, there is a massive economic impact to the United States. Uh, our ports of entry along the U.S.-Mexico border process over a billion dollars uh, a year in, in trade and travel to the United States. The local communities uh, adjacent to those ports of entry, a large part of their economic vitality and, and revenue comes from cross-border activity, whether it's you know cross-border commerce, um, imports and exports, um, or people who live on the Mexican side of the border working in that community or vice versa or, um, you know, just people coming in to spend their money in the United States and shop at the local malls. Mm -hmm. All of that represents hundreds of millions of dollars in economic activity that would uh, be immediately impacted. Uh, A little bit further away from the border, if you look at the kind of trade that comes across the U.S.-Mexico border, um, an awful lot of our fresh produce uh, we import through the U.S.-Mexico border. So that would have an impact throughout the United States. You have parts uh, that are manufactured. $137 billion in food imports, according to Reuters. That's, yes. that's a lot of yes. trade. Yeah, That's a lot of trade. So a lot of the produce you see in your grocery store is imported through the U.S.-Mexico border um, when it's not produced locally. So that's something that definitely we'd see across the country. And then you have manufacturing facilities throughout the country that are dependent on parts and other inputs coming across across the border, we think predominantly of the auto manufacturing center, Mm -hmm. um, that they don't keep a large inventory on hand. So if those parts aren't continuously coming across the border, they may have to shut down assembly lines and lay off people until it restarts again. So the economic impact of this will be felt immediately in the local border regions and very shortly thereafter throughout the United States. Mm. So this may be a threat aimed at Mexico, but it would also significantly impact the United States. It it would indeed, as uh, Reuters also reports, that uh, U.S. exports of things like refined fuels, like uh, diesel and gasoline, uh, could be stopped from going across the border, going to Mexico. So that could sting uh, U.S. businesses like big oil as well. Uh, Lastly, Teresa, I know that you work at the Bipartisan Policy Center, so you may not wish to take a side here. Uh, But it would be good if if listeners could understand the facts that we're dealing with here. Uh, President Trump tweeted on Friday that, quote, the Democrats, in all caps, have given us the weakest immigration laws anywhere in the world. Mexico has the strongest and they make more than 100 billion a year on the U.S. Therefore, in all caps, Congress must change our weak immigration laws now and Mexico must stop illegals from entering the U.S. Your response to the president, Teresa. 
Um, well, without getting to the details here, I would say I will say Congress does have responsibility here, uh, at the very least, to look at the resources needed by DHS to appropriately um, care for and process the number of migrants they're getting. Let's start there before we even think about what we might do to, uh, you know, address the flow coming in. Um, but there are certain legal obligations that the United States has for its asylum laws, and um, you know, if we're going to look at whether or not we can, for example, uh, find some way to speed up the Education of asylum cases, um, expand the immigration courts so they have enough capacity to do that. How do we do that with due process? That's going to require Congress to engage and to gauge substantively on, um, you know, what are what are appropriate solutions here. Um, I think both sides continuing to blame the other side for causing the crisis is not getting us closer to solutions. We need to actually come across the aisle and try to figure out how to solve this together. Teresa Cardinal-Brown is the Director of Immigration and Cross-Border Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a D.C.-based think tank that promotes bipartisan solutions to address key challenges facing the nation through policy solutions that are the product of informed deliberations. There's an idea. You can find their work at bipartisanpolicy.org and follow them on the Twitters at BPC underscore bipartisan. Teresa Cardinal-Brown, greatly appreciate you joining us uh, today on the broadcast. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right, let's take a uh, quick break here. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on my conversation there with uh, Teresa Cardinal-Brown and what's going on on the border uh, or what you think should be going on at the border and what either Congress or Trump should or shouldn't be doing about it right now. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Uh, what will come of this uh, claim that I guess, and we never know actually when Trump makes a claim, if it actually happens or if he's lying about it, if he's something he wants to do. But if, in fact, he ends aid to groups that are actually helping folks stay in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. What can we expect will happen next once he cuts off that funding or once he shuts down the border with Mexico? Uh, I think I mentioned Reuters. They have a report that in, um, well, let's see, in three weeks, America will run out of avocados. There's oh, no. a problem. Now, see, now everyone's going to be concerned it's about what happens. Avocado apocalypse. <laughs> avocado apocalypse. Indeed. Uh, so 818-985-5735 is our phone number. I've got some other stuff I will try to get to as well, but I would always rather hear from you uh, than from me since I get to hear from me five days a week on the broadcast. 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. A quick break, and we are back with more broadcast, including your calls. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. All right. Yeah. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Your calls in a moment, 818-985-5735 on immigration or anything else you want to get in on. Uh, mentioning uh, Alaska because we got some much better news than we've been covering over the past uh, half hour or so here. For some, uh, some very good news, I think, from the courts where it seems is the only place that we seem to get good news these days, and not only, um, and not always then either, unfortunately. President Donald Trump exceeded his authority when he reversed bans on offshore drilling in vast parts of the Arctic Ocean and in dozens of canyons in the Atlantic Ocean, a U.S. judge said in a ruling that restored the Obama-era restrictions. A federal judge in Alaska declared late on Friday that Trump's order revoking a sweeping ban on oil and gas drilling in the Arctic and Atlantic Oceans is illegal, putting 128 million acres of federal waters off limits once again, at least for the time being, to energy exploration. The decision by U.S. District Judge Sharon Gleason is the third legal setback in courts over the past week. To Trump's energy and environmental policies, it also comes on the heels of similarly bad news for Trump last week in the federal courts, as we discussed on Friday's broadcast regarding uh, his attempts to undermine the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. In those cases, uh, one federal court last week ruled the administration's attempt to allow cheap insurance policies to be sold that didn't meet the requirements of Obamacare which, by the way, applies to all health insurance now sold, not just policies that are sold on the ACA exchanges, but even your policy where you work, that is now better, better insurance, thanks to the Affordable Care Act. Um, the judge ruled that that was an end run around the federal health care laws. And in the other case, a judge nixed the Trump administration's rule that allowed for work requirements in order to receive Medicaid in Kentucky and Arkansas. But as to um, Trump's environmental failures in court last week, uh, Judge Gleason, who was appointed to the federal bench by Barack Obama in 2012, also blocked on Friday a land swap that the Interior Department had arranged that would pave the way, pun intended, I guess, for constructing a road through, uh, through wilderness in a major national wildlife ref refuge in Alaska. And earlier in the week, U.S. District Judge Louis T. Babcock, who was appointed by President Ronald Reagan, ruled that Interior's Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service illegally approved two gas drilling plans in western Colorado. The judge said that officials did not adequately analyze wildlife and climate impacts in their plans to drill 171 wells in the North Fork Valley, which provides key habitat for elk and mule deer. Uh, Trump's rollbacks of Obama-era conservation policies have suffered nearly two dozen setbacks in federal courts, largely on procedural grounds meaning that the administration did not bother to do the actual procedures necessary that are required to roll back a regulation from a previous administration, required under things like the Administrative, uh, Administrative Procedures Act, which, as I understand it, requires the government to demonstrate a legitimate reason for rolling back a previous regulation. They can't just undo stuff 
because they feel like it. They have to show uh, their evidence on why things would be better, not worse, under the new regulation. While the administration is appealing many of these court decisions and holds an advantage if the cases reach the Supreme Court, the rulings have at least slowed the uh, president's drive to expand fossil fuel production in the U.S. Late last month, as we discussed last week on the on this show uh, and on the Green News Report, uh, in what environmentalists called a holy grail ruling, a federal judge, a George W. Bush judge, by the way, in that case, halted drilling on more than 300,000 acres of oil and gas leases in Wyoming ordering the government to study the overall climate change impact if all of those lands, those public lands, are in fact exploited uh, versus the more piecemeal process of looking at just one drilling project at a time. So uh, we'll have uh, we've got more on that and we'll have more, no doubt, on the uh, Green News report coming up this week tomorrow on tomorrow's broadcast. I'm guessing. All right. Uh, But let's get to some of your calls. 818-985-5735. I want to go first to Morris, who we always hold to last. Uh, But last week, uh, Mo, uh, I don't know what happened, if it was your fault or my fault on the phones. I tried to get you, couldn't get you, so I want to get you now. Hey, Morris, how are you in Long Beach? You know I love you, man. It don't make no difference. I just want to say this to everybody within the sound of my voice. Now, I want you to resonate on this for a moment. What would make you get up and leave? where you're living right now. Leave your house, your job, mm. what you know. It would, ha- it would have to be some extenuating circumstances. And there have been. It's called climate change. Then people are coming up here because they can't grow no damn food. Mm. There's no water there. We got that problem here, okay? Now, what we're doing is we're evolving into the Antichrist. Go to St. Matthews, chapter 25, uh, verse 40. It says, "In as much as you do to the least, you do to me. We can't treat people like that, Brad. We all need each other. If Donald Trump wasn't the president of the United States, I wouldn't take him seriously, but he's the president. But it's climate change, y'all. We better treat people the way we would want to be treated, because it could happen to us. I, pre- you, I appreciate that thought, Morris. Thank you very much, and uh, glad I didn't screw up the phones this time. Always good to hear from Mo. 818 Five seven three five. Uh, some we got some folks who want to talk about some other things too. So let's uh, jump right in here. Mike in Lomita. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, Brad. As an Earthling, I'm very glad for the courts. But what I really <laughs> called about was to announce that I will not be a candidate for the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party, and I urge Joe Biden to join me in that. You you won't be, uh, Mike. Uh, well, first, why won't you be a candidate? Because you're one of the very few uh, people in this country who won't be a candidate in 2020. Well, because like Biden, I have a very mediocre academic record. I see. Uh, I, I never got accused of plagiarism, but my... <laughs> My, you know, very C plus sort of life would not stand up well to scrutiny. Uh-huh. And uh, I also did not sign. I'm happy to say the bankruptcy bill that Biden signed, which yeah. consigned a large amount of the Democratic base to penury for their lives. However, uh, I'm willing to forgive and forget Joe if he just bows out. Okay. All right. So uh, a, v- a vote for Joe Biden. To bow out. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that uh, call. That coming after uh, some allegations over the weekend that uh, the, the woman who made them is, I don't want to say she's backing off, but she's saying that it wasn't, she doesn't regard what Joe Biden did to her as sexual harassment as much as invading her 
personal private space when he sort of uh, grabbed her by the shoulders and smelled her hair and kissed her on the back of the head at a public event, I believe, where she was uh, he, he was endorsing her for lieutenant governor in Nevada. We've got all sorts of videos of Joe Biden doing that with all sorts of people. Uh, women, I guess, in particular, that seems to be how he deals with them. Uh, and uh, I guess it's made more than a few, understandably, uncomfortable. And is that something that's going to sideline Joe Biden, who is currently, if you uh, put any stock at all, and I don't know why you would in the polls, uh, currently leading the polls uh, for the 2020 Democratic nomination? 818-985-5735. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and get some more of your calls in a second. Hang on, John in Corona. I'll try to get to you first. 818-985-KPFK. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, and you're not. Let's go to John in Corona. Hey, John, welcome to the Bradcast, sir. What's on your mind? Hi, Brad. Hey. Um, a friend of mine asked a question uh, about uh, Mueller's report, mm-hmm. and I want to uh, ask that question uh, from you, mm-hmm. see what you think. Uh, uh, the question is, how uh, impossible would it be to go to Mueller and say, Mr. Mueller, you have two options. One, you get a billion dollars in a Swiss bank account. Or the second option, you end up like John F. Kennedy. Uh, (laughs) How impossible something like that would be? Well, okay. Uh, First, I think it's uh, wildly unlikely, John. Uh, But secondly, let me speak to I think what you're actually getting at is the fact that you are under the impression that Mueller uh, gave Donald Trump a clean bill of health and all is well and nothing to worry about. Is that sort of what you're uh, the impression that you're suffering under? Uh, Yes, after uh, full report is going to be. Uh, you're breaking, uh, John. You're breaking up a little bit. So let me let me just uh, speak to that thought uh, very quickly because we talked about it a whole lot last week uh, over uh, uh, like all the, maybe even all five days last week of the broadcast um, since that Mueller report was delivered to Donald Trump's Attorney General William Barr. We know almost nothing about what is in the Mueller report. All we know is basically based on those four pages, not even four pages, that came from William Barr that was sent to Congress describing, summarizing uh, what he called the, the key findings of the report. And even then, if you parse what he quotes from the Mueller report... 
I'm not uh, convinced at all, not in the slightest, that uh, Donald Trump has been cleared in any way, shape or form. Certainly not the way that uh, Donald Trump has been describing it as completely exonerating him when specifically one of the few things that uh, uh, that uh, William Barr did quote from the. Uh, from the Mueller report, says uh, on the issue of uh, obstruction of justice that uh, the two-year investigation does not exonerate him, does not exonerate the president, that based after uh, two years of investigation. So, I, yeah, I don't... Uh uh, you know, I, I think to make too much of what Mueller may or may not have said makes no sense until we actually get to see that report, which we should have seen already. Uh, Barr says it's now going to come out in uh, the next week or two. We'll see. But it should have come out already. And we'll also find out how much has been redacted from it. So I wouldn't make much of it. If I were you, 818-985-5735. We like stuff to be independently verifiable around here. I don't think that's too much to ask, and it's not too much to ask for the uh, for the corporate mainstream media to uh, demand that as well before they go out and misreport so much nonsense as they do. 818-985-KPFK. Let's go to Joseph in Hollywood. Hey, Joseph, welcome to the broadcast, sir. How you doing, Brad? I'm okay, Joseph. What's on your mind, brother? Well, I wanted to say that um, I believe that Trump has been put there for a reason, and he knows what time it is. He knows what he's there to do. And um, he's not making these big decisions. He, like, what, example, what, what is he there to do, that, Joseph? Well, it, let's, let, when he showed down the government, that's not Trump. And when he does shut down the border of Mexico, that's not Trump making those decisions. Who's making I those mean, decisions? I so I think there's a much uh, higher levels coming from higher levels because they're 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 getting ready. See, the the preppers were right about, but they were wrong about 2012. I think the government's getting ready for like massive shortages of food and all sorts of stuff. So Joseph, I, I, I hear where you're going. So who is who is it above uh, Donald Trump then who is making those decisions? Who's telling Donald Trump what to do, Joseph? Well, I mean, come on. You saw Wag the Dog. The big dog and pony show. I mean, they, tell, they put it in the movies and we still don't get it. No, no, no. I get it. I get what you're trying to say. I'm asking you, who is it that wants Donald Trump to shut down the government, who wants Donald Trump to shut down the border, uh, who wants to... Uh, who are you talking about? The big dog and pony show about the wall and the government shut down. That's all, that's all a big stage. I mean, the stage. And it's coming from higher above him, which basically, okay. you know... Who, who owns the Federal Reserve? Come on now. Let's talk about the elites, the real families. So the, so the elites are ordering Donald Trump to shut down the border, which is going to hurt the economy, which is going to hurt the people who uh, own the Federal Reserve. They're just getting ready. They're getting, I don't know. I think yeah. big changes are coming down. Yeah. I, I, I understand that. No, I understand that you you think they are, Joseph. Thank you. I appreciate that call. And you may be right, I guess. You better get uh, prepped and ready. But, I, I, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. 
And you can see what's going on. You can see what Donald Trump's doing. You can see the thousands of people pouring into the border uh, right now. Uh, you know, the, the families, the children who are coming here for a reason. And it's not to help the uh, survivalist prepper industry. It's definitely not. And I can I can actually echo what uh, Morris was saying about the issues that they're having right now in Central America, not just with the the failure of their own governments right now and corruption in their own governments. But there's a there's a long extended drought in the Central American countries. Then that makes it very difficult for people who survive by subsistence farming to survive. And I think any parent parent, you know, would would recognize the need to take care of your children and the fact that you will do whatever you need to do to take care of your own children. And And if that means you you leave because you are being attacked or threatened by gangs or even the police in your own area, then that is what you do. And what you don't do is cut off the money to the people that are trying to help those people so they don't have to take their children and uh, walk thousands of miles Uh, across the world to come to the U.S. They're not doing it because it's fun. The other thing you don't do is you don't make you don't continue to make climate change worse by cutting off all of the efforts uh, that are meant to try, at least, to curb it. And that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing. And maybe there's somebody above him who's uh, secretly pulling his strings. uh, But I don't think so. I think uh, he's capable of well, pulling his own strings, so to speak. One more call here before we got to get out, and it's got to be a quick one. Let's go to Barbara in Gardena. Hey, Barbara, I've only got a few seconds here, so what's on your mind? Uh, that kisses come in all kinds of flavors. Uh, I was thinking about the Condoleezza Rice sticking out her cheek for George Bush to kiss when she was uh, being inducted as Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it kind of depends on the situation. It's not just the fact of a kiss. So uh, you're, you're talking about Joe, yeah. we're going back to Joe Biden and the, the questions about uh, his uh, affectionate treatment of various people. Yeah, it can be congratulatory. It could be all kinds of things. Yeah. And if a woman perceives that it's something else, then uh, since kisses are... Uh, come in all different kinds. It's up to her just to say, uh, no thanks, don't do that. Thanks, Barbara. I appreciate that uh, call, Barbara. Thank you very much. I'd give you a kiss to say thanks, but it probably wouldn't be appropriate. Got to get out. Uh, My thanks to my producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, D'Angelo Jones, to everyone who called in, uh, to my guest today, Teresa Cardinal-Brown of the Bipartisan Policy Center, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other broadcast we've ever done, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at Brad blog.com on the facebooks and the twitters i am the brad blog we will see you there and we will see you tomorrow right here on the bradcast i'm brad friedman good luck world (laughs) 